chapter 3. We're continuing our study through uh, the Old Testament book of Ruth. And uh, if you haven't been with us the last uh, couple months, uh, we've, uh, we've finished two chapters of Ruth. And uh, so far, essentially what's happened in the story is uh, two women named Naomi and Ruth, uh, both widows. And uh, Ruth was the daughter-in-law of Naomi, were living in Moab. And uh, they have returned to the land of Judah, which is in the southern part of Israel. And they've come, uh, they've come to Judah uh, homeless and poor and really not sure about what the Lord has for them in the future. And uh, kind of by chance, as uh, Ruth kind of puts it, uh, they meet this man named Boaz, who's been very generous to them. He's fed them, cared for them, and developed a relationship with Ruth. And so we're picking up in uh, the story about what's going to happen with uh, Boaz's relationship to Ruth in Ruth chapter 3. So um, this is God's word. Let's read along together. Um, Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning. But arose before one could uh, recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to uh, to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and measured out six measures of barley and, uh, and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest. Uh, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for your word and how rich it is and how your, your word speaks to every area of our lives. Lord, we ask for your spirit to come now and uh, open the richness of this text to us. 
uh, that we uh, might learn who you are and that you might teach us both repentance and faith and um, give us wisdom as we uh, study your word. And we need you to be our teacher. And so we pray that you would do so uh, this morning now as we set our minds to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago, I was uh, talking to someone in our church who uh, said to me how they've really been enjoying studying through the book of Ruth over this fall. And, uh, and she also said, you know, every time I've heard the book of Ruth taught through, it's always four sermons, and they're always on dating and marriage and things. And I'm so glad that we haven't had a sermon on dating and marriage. We're not like other churches. And uh, probably four days later, I was preparing for this sermon and reading on this passage, I was like, well, you know, the book of Ruth is a love story. And so we're not going to get through it without at least one sermon on love romance and uh, marriage, and so I guess we're not as unique as, uh, as I'd like to think we are, but um, of course the question of uh, falling in love is a big question in life, and the Bible has uh, important things to say about it, and it's important for us to talk about because, uh, if, of course, if you look at uh, media and uh, music, movies, art, uh, there's probably no other topic in our culture that's more ubiquitous than the topic of romance and love. And uh, I think the reason for that is because it's the thing that we place our deepest hopes in as a culture. And because of that, because we put so much hope in finding uh, love relationships, it also is the topic that frustrates us the most and, and leads us to, the deep, and many times, the deepest despair in our life. And so, uh, in this passage, what we're looking at is, uh, you know, so far... There's been a sense of some chemistry forming between Boaz and Ruth. If you've been following along, you know, uh, Boaz has been very kind to Ruth. Ruth's a poor uh, widow, uh, and uh, he's fed her. And, and in the last chapter, it also even said that he's taken notice of her. Um, it's in this passage, though, that things kind of get turned up a bit, they, and they kind of have the DTR, if you, you, know, if you will, <laughs> define the relationship. And... Uh, uh, the big talk in this passage is charged with all the suspense, intimacy, vulnerability, and joy that makes falling in love so powerful. And, uh, but it's an interesting story because in, what happens in the story essentially is Ruth, who is a poor uh, foreigner, widow, homeless, uh, comes and actually proposes to Boaz, who is the wealthy man, uh, Israelite, and uh, kind of a risky move. She comes and proposes to him, and it turns out that he accepts the proposal. An amazing little scene here. It's, it's very beautiful. And so uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage and talk about five insights that the Bible gives us about falling in love, uh, about romance, about relationships. And, uh, you know, I should say at the beginning here, who, who is this sermon for? You might say, wow, a sermon on falling in love. Well, you know, that may be if you're in the process of falling in love or you'd like to fall in love or uh, you're pursuing someone to fall in love with. Maybe this is an appropriate sermon for you. Uh, it's also obviously, you know, if you're a parent and you're raising children, you're going to teach them about relationships. It's probably a helpful sermon for you. Actually, even if you're married and you already have fallen in love and you're in the process, there's going to be probably helpful things for you in here as well. 
But some of you might say, you might have read the title in the sermon and said, oh, great, here we go. And uh, that could be for various reasons. I mean, it could be, uh, it could be that you're single and falling in love is frustrating you. It could be that maybe you're divorced. And, uh, or maybe uh, you don't see a future of having relationships. Maybe you see a, a, you've experienced quite a lot of singleness in your life. And why would I want to hear something about this whole sermon, spend my morning listening to what the Bible has to say about relationships? Well, I just want to say up front that Christians have always said that romantic love is only a shadow of the deeper reality of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And this is an important thing for us to realize that romantic love is not the deepest truth, the deepest hope in human life. It isn't. Because many of us think that way in this culture, that if you're going to have a fulfilling, meaningful life that's full of richness and full of abundance and joy, you better fall in love with someone. But what the scriptures tell us is that the person who had the most abundant joy, the most abundant life, the most meaningful life, the life that was most brimming over with love, was the Lord Jesus. A single man. That is, the, that is the deep reality of, uh, of our world, is that this is not the ultimate joy. And the ultimate joy for Jesus, the joy that was set before him, was that he was pursuing his bride, who was the church, and that there was a coming union that gave him supreme joy when he'd be joined to his people in the age to come. And so I just want to begin by saying that as we talk about falling in love, that we recognize it's a powerful and it's a beautiful thing, but it is not the ultimate thing. And we only really enjoy it when we keep it that way as not the ultimate thing, okay? So as we keep that in mind, five things that we see in this passage about falling in love. The first is this. Falling in love should begin with planning. Falling in love should begin with planning. Now the Bible, actually, when you look at most of its teaching on love and relationships and marriage and things, it's, it's not very sentimental. It's very practical about things. And actually, you know, in this passage, Ruth, you know, Ruth's thinking about Boaz. She, you know, she might, she likes him. They're getting along and stuff. But, you know, she really practically needs a husband. She, uh, she needs someone to care for her. She's poor. So there's a lot of practical matters going on here. And, um, and as we look at this passage, we think, you know, how do Boaz and Ruth come together? Well, it's Naomi, the mother-in-law, makes a plan to get them together, right? You see the planning that goes on starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, <laughs> that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women uh, you, you were? See, he's winnowing. Uh, he's uh, winnowing barley tonight at the th- uh, threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the f- threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the, uh, to the man until, the, uh, until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he, uh, he will tell you what to do. So there's this whole plan of scheming. No, uh, Naomi's kind of planning how to arrange this union and bringing them together. Naomi is setting up Boaz and Ruth. Now, I think uh, this is an important thing, that as we explore approaching relationships, there should be forethought to it. We should go into it thoughtfully. And generally, that's not the way that we approach relationships in our culture. We just are being thrown to and fro by our emotions and our hormones and our desires wherever they send us. We are just following them. There's no forethought and planning that goes into it. We never ask the question, 
What are my goals for this relationship? What are my goals for relationships in general in my life? What are my goals for a family and, and for marriage? What are the principles that I believe in for marriage? Have I thought through those things? And um, our culture hardly asks these questions, and therefore it just seeks the thrill of sexual experiences. And so, you know, what, what, what are some practical kind of planning that needs to go on in, in, as before you enter into a relationship? Well, you know, for one thing that we see in this passage is that other people should be involved in it. Right? It's not just Ruth and Boaz, but Naomi is involved. She's planning. She has some kind of objective third point of view that she is speaking into it. And um, in this relationship, you don't see that two people are just falling in love and say, everyone, all my friends, all my family, just stay out of it. This is, I'm going to follow my heart here. And no one's speaking to this or give me wisdom. That's not the way the Bible teaches. It says you need people in your life. You need people speaking into your life. Naomi is giving counsel. Let me ask that for those of you who are in relationships. Do you have people in your life counseling you as you go about them? Do you have the humility to listen to them? And I love the humility of, of uh, Ruth in this passage. In verse, set, in verse 5, she says to Naomi, All that you say, I will do. And this is, you know, this is a big part of relationships really in the church. Actually, uh, I've heard that John Calvin, the great uh, 16th century theologian, uh, people who have studied his letters say that they're actually, what a lot of his letters are full of is not just theology and things, but all kinds of matchmaking. You know, he's like, hey, I know so-and-so over here. He's kind of a godly guy, you know, and you know her. Let's match them up. And, you know, there's this community effort of, of making unions that are really honoring to God and that are wise. And so people need to be involved in it, all right? So, I mean, that's one part of planning is, is listening to other people, having conversations of shaping how do I approach relationships, what are my convictions about it? But I think there's also, you know, practically here, there's also an aspect of, uh, you know, uh, making yourself presentable, right? You know, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, wash yourself, anoint yourself, you know, before you go see Boaz. And, you know, I, I can't even, it's amazing that I'm even saying this point when Shannon and I were first dating. I, I literally had a, one of those dumb and dumber haircuts, I, which I think I gave to myself where it just kind of, I cut across like this. Absolute miracle that uh, that that relationship ever worked out. Um, I must have wore a hat a lot or something like that. But um, there should be some sense of uh, we prepare and say, I w if you want to fall in love with someone, of, of thinking about what you're presenting to people. And I think this is broader than just a physical physical appearance. Um, Doug Wilson has a great little quote where he says, "Be the kind of person, the kind of person you want to marry, wants to marry." Think of the kind of person that you want to marry. Be the kind of person that the kind of person you want to marry wants to marry. I might have to say that five times for you to catch it. But, uh, but I, what that means, that, that means if, uh, if you're a guy, if you're in college and you're a guy and you're beginning to think about your future relationship, you should be thinking about things about your work. How are you going to provide for family? What plans do you have for the future? Do you have goals? Making a living. These are the kinds of things that you should think of uh, thinking in advance and preparing Falling in love begins with thoughtful planning and preparation. I know that doesn't sound very romantic and, and exciting and thrilling, but it's wise. And, you know, I think probably for those of us who have young children, it's probably something we could start earlier in the process. You know, I, I, even my daughter Lucy, when she was two years old, I was beginning to I have this little catechism that I would ask her. Okay, what's the most important thing about the boy that you marry? He loves Jesus. Okay, how do you know that he loves Jesus? He prays. 
he goes to church. Are you bringing him to church, or is he bringing you to church? Are you dragging him to church? No, he brings me to church. He, he prays. He's kind. And all these things that we're talking through, it's just having a vision of, okay, this is the kind of picture of, of the, the kind of person I'm looking for and the, rela- the kind of relationship that I'm looking for. Many Christians do not have any kind of plan or guidelines leading them into the process of falling in love. They are simply drifting into relationships and following their desires. And the reason that this forethought is so important is because of the second thing that we learn about falling in love in this passage, not just that involves planning, preparation, thinking about your convictions, but second, falling in love uses sexual desire to lead to commitment. Falling in love uses sexual desire to lead to commitment. Now, you, when I read this passage, you may have already sensed that I... This passage is highly sexually evocative. And you can see this here, verse, uh, starting in verse 3, when Naomi gives her plan to Ruth, this is what she says, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Many scholars have actually said this sounds almost exactly like what a prostitute would have done in the ancient world. Okay, you know, washing and anointing, anointing, she's putting on perfume, and uh, these are the first steps towards a sexual encounter. And uh, the garment, she's taken off her widow garment, you know, and that she's in mourning, and she's no longer in mourning, and she's now available. And uh, and then she's going down to the, to the threshing floor after they've, you know, they, they have all these piles of food, and Boaz is eating there. It would be common for prostitutes to go down there after these men have, you know, they've been eating and drinking, and they'd go visit them with their uh, pile of wealth. And then it gets even more uh, racy, you might say here. Uh, and it goes on. It says, but when, uh, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this line uh, takes it even further. That line, that, that word uncover his feet, was a euphemism in the ancient world for uncovering his stuff. Well, yeah, I don't know the right word, but it's certainly ambiguous. And now it doesn't always refer to that. It doesn't mean that that's what she's doing. And, um, but as a reader, the question for us as we're reading this is what is going to happen down at the threshing floor? When Ruth goes down there, what's going to happen? What is Naomi setting up here? And I think there's absolutely no question that these two do not have a sexual union. There is a large amount of sexual desire and tension being built up, being stirred up in this passage. And I think, you know, a couple reasons that we know that. First of all, as you read through the book of Ruth, one of the main purposes of the book of Ruth is Boaz and Ruth are these pictures of godliness to Israel. This is what you're supposed to live like. And then, as the passage goes on, it's, it's very clear that Boaz doesn't come on to her. He says, sleep the night down there and we'll figure out things in the morning. It's, the author is very clear that they don't come together. And... Um, there's something artistically brilliant about what's happening here of giving a strong sense of sexual desire but they're not coming together because in our culture we think that that's inevitable. That when love is stirred up is you have to come together sexually. And this passage is saying no it doesn't. And there's an artistic power to that. Actually there's a couple movies that came out over the last 10 years. Some of you may have seen them that had really used this as, as the crucial point in the movie 
One was with uh, the movie with Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson called Lost in Translation. It came out about 10 years ago. And it, it's about these two Americans who kind of fall in love in Tokyo. And they're in this hotel and they kind of meet in a bar there and they talk and there's you know, all this chemistry and uh, things are forming. And there's this scene uh, toward, you know, well into the movie where this relationship has been forming where they have a conversation. They're lying on a bed together and they have a conversation. And the whole time you think, oh, here it's going to happen. I'm going to have to fast forward to this part here. And, uh, and it never happens. And I saw uh, an interview with the director who said this was the whole point was to be countercultural, that relationships that stir up, that stir up sexual desire don't, have to, don't inevitably lead there. Another movie, some of you might have saw, if you don't know these movies, I apologize. There's another movie called Once that came out as a low-budget kind of film uh, about these two musicians who kind of fall in love, and this woman's been separated from her husband, and they play all this music together, and you sense, wow, there's this relationship that's forming, and at the end of the movie, though, you think they're going to come together, and they don't. She goes back to her husband. It is not inevitable, just because desires are being stirred up, that we actually, that the result is sexual union. And actually, what we see in this passage is something different. Okay, look at verse 6. Let's see what happens. So Naomi makes this plan. This is what I want you to do, Ruth. I'm going to send you down into the threshing floor, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And the question is, what is Boaz going to do? Here's the woman who's come to him in the night. How is Boaz going to respond to this? Verse 10, And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townspeople know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true, I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will, not, uh, if he will uh, redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he will not redeem, uh, it, but if he is not willing to redeem you, then... As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. What we see in Boaz, there's this sense of delight. He's delighted that she's come to him. There's also this sense of humility. He's humbled by the fact that she would, she would come to him. There's glee. And yet, what does he do? He commits himself to her. He pledges himself to her. He makes a promise. He doesn't take advantage of her. He prays for her and promises to provide for her. Which, by the way, if, if you are uh, a woman thinking about what kind of man as you're doing your prayerful preparation of thinking about marriage, here's a good example. He prays for her. Does a man have a spiritual relationship? Does he know the Lord? Uh, he commits to her. Is, is a man willing to make a commitment? Is he running away from commitment? And, uh, and he, he says he will provide for her. Is a man willing uh, to work, to care for his family? These are three questions that I think any Christian woman should be asking about a man that she's considering a relationship with. Boaz does not take, he gives. 
And this is what the reason that God has made sexual desire. Because some of you might ask, why is, you know, why in the experience of, you know, dating or falling in love, is there all this sexual desire? And then God says that uh, you can't express it. And uh, G.K. Chesterton has a really interesting quote somewhere where he says that what happens when you're young and infatuated and falling in love, one of the first things that you want to say is what? I want to be with you forever. I want to be with you forever. You know, this is, I finally found my soulmate. And what God is saying and what the Bible is saying is that those young people who fall in love, who are making those vows to each other, it takes them seriously. Okay, that's right. You want to really experience love? We're going to keep you at your word that you want to be together forever. That's going to be a lot harder than you think. But it's actually essential before you enter into a sexual relationship. And um, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says the same things. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What happens in our culture is we take sexuality very seriously. It is the most, carries the most burden of anything in our culture. And yet we take commitment very lightly. The Bible reverses these things. It says that in a marriage, there's, you know, sexuality should, should have a playfulness and a pleasure to it, but the thing that should have a tremendous amount of gravity and weight to it is the, the vow, the promise of a marriage. That's what holds the marriage together. And of course, sexuality is, is beautiful and it's powerful, but uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis says, it is never wise to be totally serious about Venus. And Venus is his way of talking about uh, uh, you know, sexual encounters. And so what that means, first of all, just very practically, if you're here and you're in a dating relationship where you are having sex or you're pretending to have sex and you're a Christian, you just need to know that, first of all, the Bible forbids that. You are in rebellion against God. You should take that very seriously. There's a place that, uh, there are places where Paul talks about how the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are serious things that God commands to us. But it's not only that God, that, that God forbids it, it's also very destructive to a relationship. Relationships, sexuality thrives within the covenant of a marriage. And, uh, and the reason for that is not because the Bible is anti-sex. The Bible's not anti-sex. The Bible celebrates sex. The Bible says God gave sex to us for us to enjoy. And it is a blessing. It has a whole book. The Song of Songs is pretty much a whole book celebrating the goodness of, of uh, sexual union. And yet the Bible says that it must be done within the commandments of God because he's given to us. And when we do that, it is beautiful. And so what we see in this passage is that falling in love uses sexual desire to force us into the hard thing of commitment. It pushes us into thinking about commitment in our relationships. Okay? But that leads us to a third thing that we can see in this passage is that tells us that falling in love is always a risk. Entering into a, a relationship, a love relationship, is always a risk. And, you know, one of the great aspects of this passage is the daring of Ruth, right? Uh, you know, Ruth uh, is a Moabite woman, and she's going at night to this respected man, Boaz, and she's going to propose to him. She's quite bold. You know, actually, I, when she and I first fell in love, I remember, you know, we were sitting there talking one day, and... You know, I was quite in love with her. And I said, you know, I kind of threw this out of, 
So, you know, when do you think you love someone? And she's like, well, you know, I think I love you. I was like, oh, I think I love you too, you know. And, uh, and I, but, you know, Shannon, for her, she's just bold. She's like, this is who I am. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going I'm to tell you who I am. And, um, and Ruth is bold like that. She's bold and she goes out and she tells Boaz her desires. And whenever you put out your desires like that and say, this is what I long for, you are always putting yourself in a possibility of real rejection. And, um, you know, Boaz could have said any number of things to Ruth. You know, when she comes to him at night, he said, what are you doing? Why have you come to me at night? You're a foreigner woman and you're coming to me here? Get out of here? He could have made a public display of it and completely humiliated her in front of the community. There are all kinds of things that could have happened in this scene. And yet Ruth puts herself out there. Real, loving intimacy never happens unless we're willing to do that. It never happens unless we're willing to do that. And look at what it says, verse 9. Listen to Ruth. And he said to her, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And it's actually in that phrase that she's really proposing because we'll talk more about the Redeemer uh, in the next couple of weeks. But basically what she's saying to Boaz is you should buy uh, uh, Naomi's inheritance. And Boaz knows what that means. If, 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 if Boaz buys Naomi's inheritance, he will be obligated to marry Ruth. And she is asking him to do that. And um, this, in many ways, is what love is all about. Is all about. It is the dance of risking and putting your desires out there. In order to have the ex- uh, the experience of marriage and of intimacy, you have to take a plunge. There is always the risk of rejection. And let me just tell you, this isn't just in the beginning when you're falling in love and you want to ask someone out on a date or you ask someone to marry you. Then there's all that risk. This is the whole experience of marriage for the rest of your life is giving to another your deep longings and desires and asking them, uh, you know, think of how vulnerable it is to make a request to someone. And in a sexual relationship, especially that's way, to make your desires known. You're putting your desires into the hand of another person. And what could happen? How do you ask for that? What if you're rejected? What if you're ridiculed that you have those longings and desires? And it forces you to ask questions like, have I been a good enough wife or husband to ask for that? What if I don't deserve these things? There are many questions in intimacy that bring up our desires, and to bring your desires to the forefront is always a tremendous risk. Actually, I was talking to Randy Williams. Randy Williams is a marriage and family counselor in our church. And he was telling me that uh, many times when he has couples that will come into his office and, and meet with him who are just heated in anger with each other. And they, they're saying, I don't see how this relationship can work. We can't even have a conversation together. And it's so heated. And what he says is many times those relationships that are the most heated are on the brink of their deepest intimacy. Because what's happening in those fights is there's some desire that we have deep down, a deep longing that we are fighting for that we have never let the other person know about. 
And so, you know, you're, you know, the guy wants to go bowling with his friends, and they're fighting about whether he should go bowling with his friends. And the real issue is that, you know, maybe the wife is saying, I'm afraid of being abandoned. I want to feel like I know that you're going to be there for me no matter what. And there's a real tender longing in there. But it, you never talk about that. It's only talking about bowling. And they fight and they fight and they fight about bowling. But the real intimacy, the real uh, closeness is in the risk of letting those desires out and really saying what they are and entrusting them to another person. And it's only when we do that that we experience our most profound intimacy in relationships. And so falling in love always has this vulnerability and risk to it. Now, if that is true that we're going to actually entrust our deepest longings to another person. Then a fourth thing about falling in love that we see in this passage is crucial, and that is that falling in love should prioritize character. As you're going in the process of falling in love, the first thing you should be thinking about is uh, not sexual attraction or relational chemistry, um, but character. And here's Boaz. And you know, the scene for Boaz, it, you know, it's like... You know, many men fantasize about things like this. I, you know, I'm, I, I've been eating and drinking, and I'm out, you know, at night, and the woman of the night comes for a visitation, and uh, and he's just finished feasting. He's going out into the evening, but the thing that thrills Boaz about Ruth is her character. It is her character. That is the thing that thrills him. That is the thing that is most attractive to, her, to him. The thing that is most beautiful about her. Actually, we know nothing about Ruth's appearance. Whether she was beautiful or not, we don't know anything. We only know about her faith and her character and who she was. And actually, we find out that Ruth, the thing that, was, that attracted Ruth to Boaz was his character. Look at what it says, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And, uh, um, and what, you know, what he's saying is, you know, there's all kinds of people that mo- may have been more eligible ba- bachelors for you, that you may have been more attracted to. That, you weren't looking for wealth. You weren't look, well, looking for someone who's good looking. You, were, you came to me because I was generous with you. And then in verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. It is not her physical beauty that attracted Boaz to Ruth. It was her character. She was a worthy woman. And um, the things that the world prioritizes are not the things that the Bible prioritizes. And, you know, Tim Keller has a great book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage. And one of the best parts of that book, he talks about how the importance in a, in a marriage relationship of friendship. And that this, this is really the great blessing of marriage is having a lifelong best friend. And he describes friendship this way. He says, there are two features of real friendship, constancy and transparency. Real friends always let you in and they never let you down. It's a question of character. And he adds that real friendship uh, also has a shared sense of mission, of, of you know, a shared devotion to the Lord. And that's what you see with, with uh, Ruth and Boaz, is there's a transparency and a commitment to each other and a commitment to the Lord. And it's in this kind of friendship that is a real blessing of, uh, of a marriage relationship. And you know, what happens in our culture is we discard relationships for the most petty reasons. You know, the, this person, you know, they eat funny or something like that. And I, you know, I'm not going to... Uh, 
I just can't be around that. And we minimize the importance of character. There may be someone in our life that really has a beautiful character who loves the Lord, would be a great lifelong companion, but uh, because they don't look the way that we want them to or they talk funny or something like that, we just discard them. And the Bible says we should prioritize uh, uh, character. And the reason for this is this. It is better to not be married and wish you were than to be married and wish you weren't. To be in a, in a marriage relationship with someone who does not have character is going to be miserable. And if you don't have godly character, it's going to be miserable. It is better to not be married and wish you were than to be married and wish you weren't. And so, um, now, what that means, though, as we think about this, uh, the Bible prioritizes uh, character in you know, romantic relationships or in marriage relationships. One issue with that is that ultimately, um, the reality is that ultimately all of our characters are flawed. You know, how do you enter into a relationship? You prioritize character. We're all sinners. And we're going to find out how much more sinful we are once we enter into a marriage relationship. Um, and there are great limitations on what marriage can bring. And so this leads to the last point that I want to make about marriage. So what, let me just summarize real quick. I've said quite a lot. That first, there should be planning and preparation as we enter into uh, romantic relationships. And we should understand that the sexual desire that is stirred up in a romantic relationship should lead us to commitment. Not to sexual morality, but it should lead us to commitment. And, um, but that commitment is always a risk. It's always a putting ourselves out there. And the, the kind of people that we could, should risk and put ourselves out to are people of character. But the last thing that we see in this passage is that falling in love is ultimately about the gospel. And, you know, as I, uh, as I mentioned the weeks before, you know, when Ruth finally bears her soul in this passage, that, that request that she makes to Boaz, and she expresses her deepest longing, we see in verse 9 that her deepest longing is for a redeemer. A redeemer is the thing that she's really longing for. And what Boaz represents to her is someone who can free her from the futility of her life, right? She's poor, she doesn't have a job, she doesn't have a community, and he can answer all those questions for us. And what happens in our culture, the reason we are so infatuated with romantic relationships is that we believe that uh, if we find the perfect spouse, the perfect person to fall in love with, they can free us from the futility of our lives. We think that if we find them, then I'm going to be alive and I'm going to have a sense of fulfillment and I'm going to have a sense of meaning. But the scriptures tell us over and over again that no mere human can do that for us. It is only the Lord Jesus who can do that for us, the true Redeemer. And that's why, you know, Christians have always said that Boaz, in this passage, he's, he is a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus, the true and ultimate Redeemer. He is the one who beholds us as we are. He's the one who embraces and speaks to us words of love. He's the one who protects us and provides for us. He's the one who dies and sacrifices for us. And so what that means to us is that if this morning, if you're here and you're married, how much of your relationship are you looking for your spouse to give the deepest satisfaction in your life? Know that they are only a shadow of the one who is to come, the great bridegroom. If you're here and you're not married, it is important to know that everything you are longing for ultimately 
is fulfilled in Jesus. All the thrill, think of all the thrill of intimacy that we long for, of being known, being beheld, being exposed, and someone seeing us, and the great ecstasy and sense of transcendence that comes from falling in love. This is only a taste of when we stand before the Lord and we live in his presence. That is the reality. That is the substance. And that is on offer for all of us as we receive it by faith. And what happens is if we make romantic love into a God, it will become a demon. And it will frustrate us and it will disappoint us. And so, uh, romance, marriage, and love are all good things, but they are not the ultimate thing. Jesus is, and our longings for joy, pleasure, intimacy, and transcendence only find their yes in him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we uh, thank you for your word and many challenging things in these passages. I pray uh, for those who are sitting here, there may have just been small parts from the words that they've heard that apply to them. And I pray that you would uh, give each one of us courage to repent uh, of whatever sexual immorality is in our lives. That we would also have faith, though, to find that you indeed are our greatest hope. And if we look anywhere else for redemption, it will fail us. Lord, draw us near to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name.